Hello and good evening. Welcome to Across the Pond. Pond, across the pond with Barry and Chad. Hello, Barry. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Chad. I'm sitting here in Joburg waiting to get my haircut, get rid of this monstrosity. <laughs> um, but other than that, I'm doing well. How are you, Chad? Yeah, all good. We were just chatting before hitting the record button, and I'm thankful that I haven't had to worry about that this past lockdown. My fiance has upskilled, um, certainly in that field, and it definitely makes life a lot easier. But I'm glad for your point that you can just get rid of all the extra hair and, uh, I suppose, get back to feeling human again. Yeah, it's important, Chad. At one stage, I was standing in front of the mirror telling myself, I'm going to cut my own hair, and I had the YouTube video ready, <laughs> had the tutorial going, but I just couldn't do it. I didn't believe in myself enough. It looked way too difficult and I didn't want to stuff it up, so I'm very happy. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, let's start with the week that was. The week that was. All right, so let's start at the top of the segment with the COVID-19 updates from around the world, really. And uh, let's start on my side of the pond in the United Kingdom. And this last week, we've seen a actual announcement to drop the alert level from alert level four to alert level three. Now, personally, I don't know completely what this all entails and what it all means, but what it is essentially is that final hurdle that Boris has been needing to actually move forward with any more significant lockdown eases. And I suppose the fact that this downgrade from level four to level three was prompted by scientists and I suppose other external advisors uh, certainly, certainly makes it a little bit easier for him to, to move forward on this. Now, I think one of the potential reasons for this this past week is that the UK has discovered um, through various studies that there is this cheap widely available steroid, one that's been used for years and years and years, that reduces the death significantly among seriously ill patients. From what I've seen, we're looking at numbers of sort of 30 to 35%. Um, and so coming out from that, this drug, which is called dexamethasone, I hope I said that all right, um, really, really is quite groundbreaking and I'm sure is going to affect a lot of policy around the world. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of been the talk of the town at the moment. I think we've seen over the last couple of weeks that all of these studies are starting to bear fruit because now they've had enough time to run and enough time to test different things. And this is quite an exciting one, like you say. It does seem to bring the death down, especially on those patients on ventilators, which is a really big deal. So if you're able to kind of tackle those very, very sick patients, the ones who are really at risk of dying on ventilation and give them something that gives them a much better chance, you can keep that death rate relatively stable, we'd like to hope. And so it really is, is a bit of good news. Hopefully it's the first step of many of these types of interventions. We're still waiting for that vaccine, of course, but this is a great first step to try and make sure we can limit those deaths and allow places like London and the UK and all around the world to start unlocking this lockdown and getting, getting things back to normal. Absolutely. I mean, the thing that I loved about this story, really, is that all along we've had something in wide supply all across the globe. We're not talking about a logistical nightmare of getting some new drug shipped all across the world, but something as simple as repurposing this drug really can make such a wide difference across the globe. I love that. Yeah, it's a, it's, a really piece, it's a really big piece of good news, right? And it's a first step towards trying to figure out how do we stop this thing. I know here on this side of the pond, Chad, Cicero Ramaphosa, this African president, also mentioned in his speech, and he talked about the fact that in South Africa, we also have people who can locally manufacture it and produce it. So it's a really good thing. I think it's one of those examples of when one little, one little breakthrough somewhere in the world can really be spread across the world very quickly without all the logistical nightmares we were expecting if the drug was something brand new or something quite cosmetic in a way. This is really really widely available, like you say, and hopefully will be a big stopping point to try and keep those deaths at a manageable rate. Absolutely. I mean, the thing that we've been trying to avoid, I suppose, is as much fatality as possible. And I suppose now the fact that we can cut that fatality rate by, let's say, a third, if not even more, um, by this drug that we already have access to, it certainly, I think, will show the way for a lot of countries opening up a little bit more and at least mitigating that economic loss, that economic hardship that we've seen happen uh, so much over the past couple of months. So in terms of those eases that you've seen this past week in South Africa, Barry, talk us through those. Yeah, so the African president, Ramaphosa, came on and, and started talking to the nation uh, a couple of days ago now. And basically what he said was that the level is going to stay at level three, but there's various amendments to that level that's going to open up new industries that haven't been opened previously. So right. kind of some of the key points here, restaurants are going to be allowed to open for sit-down meals, obviously with all the social distancing and the cleanliness in place. But previously, you could only get deliveries or you can go and pick up. Now you'll be able to go and sit down at a restaurant. 
Places like cinemas and theaters and salons and hairdressers, of course, are now allowed to be open, obviously with all the social distancing measures in place, and some accommodation and some conference venues as well. So a little bit of the tourist, tourism industry will be able to come, come alive again and kind of some of, the, some of the conference venues for some big business stuff, um, those are going to start to open slowly but surely. Um, and what that does is it really helps the economy start to get a little bit more back to normal, start to open up industries that were potentially the least necessary of all the industries, right? So it really is good news for us. The question is, what are the numbers going to do in response to that? We've seen the Western Cape is still a big issue here in South Africa. We haven't seen as much trouble in, say, Gauteng and those kind of areas. But the Western Cape and the Eastern Cape are really struggling at the moment. So we have to wait and see what this does. But it's a necessary kind of move in order to get the economy back to, back to running. I think those eases are huge. Um, the fact that you guys have cinemas that are going to be opening and restaurants as well, um, I definitely think it's a big ease. And so the thing for me that is really, really interesting here is why they decided to keep level three as the level of play uh, for this state of eases. And for me, I wonder whether it's a kind of PR kind of thing and whether they thought some sort of easing would play into your subconscious and maybe lead a lot of people to drop their guard a little. Yeah, it's a difficult one. I think it's been a, a big conversation here in the country talking about what is the right level of easing and how quickly do you want to do it. There's a lot of pressure from a lot of employers and a lot of companies and associations around the country pushing the government to open things up. So the casinos were very, very tough on lobbying for opening yeah. up. The hairdressers and salons and, and all these guys, the schools are going through like a whole bunch of stuff to try and open up all those schools again. And so I think everyone wants to get back to work and wants to get back to normal life. And the government's in a very difficult position because they have to look after the long-term health of the, of the nation, right? And so it is a very difficult one. I think that their plans of the five levels, obviously you plan as well as you can right at the beginning, but things change and they have to adapt on the fly. And so I don't think these amendments are out of the ordinary. I think it kind of it's it's relatively reasonable compared to what's happening around the rest of the world. Sure. But the question is, like you say, do the citizens get complacent and do they forget about the virus and do they start to take more risks, which could end in a rather bad way? So as with all of this, it comes down to the discipline of the individuals in that country. And it comes down to individual South Africans who have to decide now, are you going to go to the cinema? Are you going to go to the restaurant? Are you going to go to the casino, etc.? And what kinds of precautions are you going to put in place if you choose to do so? So it's a difficult one. As a government, you're in a no-win situation because you don't know what the future is going to look like. And uh, either way, it's going to be made for political gain. And so who knows, Chad? We'll have to wait and see. Absolutely. Well, I read a brief little transcript of his speech. And one of the things that I found fascinating is that he drew quite a lot of focus on this ongoing alcohol debate, one that we've spoken about here on this podcast before. And the specific area of focus here was to do with the stats and the increase in numbers of child and women abuse during this period that alcohol has been reintroduced. What are your takes on that? Yeah, it's been a very big conversation here, Chad. And I think that the, the, the concept of gender-based violence has been a big thing here in South Africa for a number of years now. It's, it's, a, it's a very big kind of cultural, socioeconomic thing that we are dealing with. And uh, it's kind of, the conversation has kind of shifted, like you say, as to what is alcohol's role in this? Obviously, we can't attribute all of the violence to alcohol, but a surprising sure. amount is due to it. And we've run this weird experiment in South Africa in the last two months where they weren't selling alcohol, and we started to see what happened to our trauma centers, to our hospitals, to the, the amount of violence being reported. And now the alcohol is being able to be sold again, we're starting to see those numbers go back to where they used to be. So there's a big conversation here about what kind of society do we want to live in? Obviously, we don't want to live in a society when alcohol is prohibited because we want people to be able to do what they want to do. Like We still want sure. a free market. But at the same time, we have to be looking after our women and our children in our society. And we haven't been doing a good enough job of that as of yet. I think that the numbers of the, the violence against those, those, those groups is absolutely shocking. And it's really terrible compared to even in like a global kind of average or global mean. And so it's been a big conversation here. I don't know what the right answer is. Obviously, I'm biased because I'm, I'm a no alcohol kind of person. So I would love to see like more restriction and maybe more tax and kind of try and dis disincentivize alcohol as much as possible. But at the same time, I don't want to see it prohibited or any of that kind of stuff. I want a free market. So yeah, it's an interesting cultural conversation we're having and it will be, we have to wait and see whether South Africa can actually make progress on it or if it's just going to be a lot of talk. Yeah, I definitely don't think it's the end of this conversation. I think it's going to be one that's going to be plaguing the government, uh, certainly to make a decision on this. And uh, let's just see what they go for. Now, one of the things that we've seen happen today, Barry, as we record this episode, is a whole bunch of strikes happening in Gauteng uh, about taxis and taxi unions. Talk us through it. 
Yeah, so the taxi associations, of course, in this country are very important to the African economy. And they're one of the biggest industries that were affected by the nationwide lockdown because all of a sudden their taxis were empty, right? But they still had to pay off the leases and the financing and the fuel and all of the stuff. And so they really were badly hit by this economic shift and yeah. put a lot of those guys on the brink of kind of running out of time, running out of money, running out of business. And so they've been looking to government for some sort of assistance. Um, a lot of these guys are kind of unregulated. They're not really formal in that way. They're, it's a very informal kind of market and to try and get regulation and assistance and get access to all these grants and these funds available is very challenging if you don't have those that backing of a formal kind of business structure and so that's been the conversation right now and government came on board and they said listen we're going to put together x amount of billion rand to kind of pay everybody and it worked out to about five thousand rand per vehicle as kind of a grant to assist but a lot of these taxi drivers are think that it's no that's nowhere near enough especially after two months of lockdown and so they've been striking to try and get that raised to twenty thousand rand per vehicle so what they did, Chad, was they went in the, in the early hours of, of Monday morning, as we record this, and they blocked up some of the major highways in Johannesburg, especially the ones between Johannesburg and Pretoria. Um, obviously, there's a lot of traffic that comes to those two areas. If you're not South African, you, yeah. that's one of the major kind of work uh, commutes in, 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 the, in the country. And so it really was a, a big nuisance to everyone trying to get to work going both ways. And so that strike was, was quite aggressive. It was quite serious. We've seen lots of taxi strikes in the past. So we're quite used to it by now as South Africans. Yeah. But... Um, the police had to get involved, and so the National Defense Force had to get involved, try and get them to move and try and like talk them through it. What happened was the minister Fakile Mbulula, when he when he heard about some of the stories and some of the violence that was happening, he actually went to Twane to go and talk to the guys and go and have a briefing to the media, but also to the taxi drivers themselves and the association owners, and try and talk through some of the the grievements and trying to figure out what is a compromise going forward. Um, and basically, his 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 take of it was: there's no more money. There's no money to give you. Like we'd love to try and help out, and we'd love to try and help, but the government is struggling. I mean, they're fighting a thousand fires at once, right? So there isn't it isn't this bottomless pit of money to give these guys, and so that's a difficult one. And unfortunately, the crowds got a bit aggressive after that, and he had to jump in his car and run away, which which created a whole new um, meme format about Fikile running away from the problem. Um, but it's one of those things where, unfortunately, we just don't have the economic strength to help these guys like we should be able to do. The thing is that they can hold the country ransom. They are so crucial to the economic development and the economic running of this country because the vast majority of the population or the working population require them to get to and from work. They are a crucial, crucial piece of this puzzle. And so we have to find a way to have a compromise. We have to find a way to support this industry to ensure that we can actually get it running on a sustainable basis and we don't lose tons and tons of taxis because of this economic shutdown. It's a difficult one. Yeah, it really, really is a tricky one. And for anyone who hasn't been to South Africa or hasn't been to Johannesburg, at least, there is no public transport, pretty much. There is one train, which is called the Gau train. And I suppose, you know, for most people I know, the biggest utility that it gives is that you can go to the airport when you need to go and catch a flight. Aside from that, there are other links and there are other stations. But if your end destination is not close to one of those stations, there really aren't many other options. And so these taxi networks and the taxi industry, like Barry said, is absolutely crucial, absolutely fundamental. And it's tough. We've been talking about how the government's hands are really tied um, in terms of a lot of these economic relief measures. And so it's going to be interesting to see how the situation unfolds over time. And hopefully violence isn't the way to go here. And hopefully we can find some other kind of solution. Yeah, I think so. I think if we detach ourselves from the emotion of a chat, it's quite a fascinating case study. I can see it becoming yeah. one of those like Harvard case studies they study in MBAs because it really is looking at what is the public good? Like how much public uh, benefit you get from these taxi associations, right? One of the big things you, you chat about the Khao train, the Khao train is still crazy expensive for a vast yep. vast majority of the population, right? So sure. you need a public transport system that is that is affordable for most of the people. And the taxis are affordable for the most part. So they're very, very important. And so you're trying to weigh up those two things, right? You're trying to weigh up what value does the government need to kind of secure and kind of keeping them alive in order to keep the economy alive versus the actual cash flow they need to disperse. It's a very, yeah. very difficult decision. And like I say, when, when things aren't regulated, we don't have good data about how many are out there, where people are going, all those kind of root information, you don't necessarily have the right information. So it's a very difficult one. You're kind of making calls with your hands tied behind your back. It's, it's, it's challenging. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. One of the other challenging things that we've been monitoring, I suppose, over time, we spoke about a really, really heartbreaking call um, that the CEO had to make to suppliers. Um, but there's been more development on the EdCon story this past week. Talk us through it. Yeah, so EdCon, of course, are in the middle of business rescue. And uh, they are a huge retailer here in South Africa. They've got a huge footprint across the country. And like you say, too, when we heard that call of the CEO telling the suppliers he couldn't pay them, it was heartbreaking. And now we're seeing the next level of that of that with the actual employees themselves. So it's very sad to, to hear that EdCon have, have served 22,000 South African citizens wow. with retrenchment Same. notices, right? And uh, obviously that's a huge deal for the country, for those employees and for the families that they feed with that money. It really does show that EdCon is in real, real bad shape. And these retrenchments are a desperate effort to try and keep the company alive and try and stave off some sort of liquidation or some sort of like bankruptcy, right? And uh, unfortunately, this is necessary because they can't find a buyer, Chad. Basically, the business rescue guys are des trying desperately trying to find a buyer to buy this, buy these assets up. And uh, it's tough to find a buyer in this kind of circumstances right now. COVID hit at the very worst time for them. It really mm -hmm. kind of um, made all their previous financial struggles even worse because everything was locked down. And no one's really in the market to buy huge retail stores right now. And so the business rescue guys are doing their best, but there's a lot of controversy around what they're doing and how they're doing it. I know that Econ is in lots of legal battles at the moment with various suppliers, suppliers who were perhaps un unsecured, but now are, instead of getting 50 cents on the rand or 20 cents on the rand, are now looking to get four cents on the rand, which wow. is basically nothing. And if your whole business was reliant on that Econ contract, your whole business could be in jeopardy. So there are lots and lots of court battles, lots and lots of people fighting all over the place. And uh, unfortunately, time is running out. EdCon can't keep doing this forever, right? They have to find a solution very quickly. And these retrenchments, again, are going to be another thing to worry about as these people start to lose their jobs. So very sad, Chad. And to be honest, I don't know how EdCon gets out of this. Absolutely heartbreaking. And I certainly in my lifetime have not seen a story this big in terms of that number of employees in, with a brand that we know and you know have previously loved, I suppose. I know that they have unstripped CNA from the, the group offering, but I guess there's a much, much wider conversation here. Um, and they had you know various debt issues as the years go by, um, try to convert those debt holders into equity holders and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I agree with you, Barry. I think they're definitely on their last legs. Yeah, I think one of the things that all the, the pundits and analysts have been talking about is how in the last kind of five to 10 years, how they've shifted so much from the, of their cash business, their traditional yeah. buy clothes and, and, and sell them in the stores to trying into financial services. So offering their yeah. customers lots and lots of credit, offering them lots and lots of opportunities to buy on labor and pay later and all that good stuff. And all that stuff works when the economy is strong and when people have disposable sure. cash. But unfortunately, that strategy has is, is kind of backfired on them because there were a lot of customer debtors for like small amounts of clothing pieces that they can't collect now. And so even if you have them on your balance sheet, you've got those accounts receivable, if your company doesn't have the cash flow, you can't survive sure. to collect that money. And so that's one of the things I think that has changed in Edcon the last 10 years that might have been a contributing factor to some of the, the problems. Um, of course, they have had some brands that haven't really worked. I mean, CNA has certainly lost its relevance over the last decade or so. And so they're in a very unfortunate position. They've got a lot, a lot of people on their books and they're desperately trying to stay alive. We need someone to buy them. Absolutely. Well, I don't think this is going to be the last big retailer that we're going to see stories like this come through. Um, certainly, all of these eases do help. But retail, I suppose, as an industry as a whole, is facing its own nemesis, the wave of online. Um, and so we'll certainly see what happens in the next couple of months. Now, one of the tech giants we seem to not be able to avoid, and we're talking about them twice this week, uh, is Facebook. And we now are going to talk about WhatsApp and something that's happened that side. Yeah, so WhatsApp, of course, is this ginormous company that has kind of taken over messaging around the world. They have billions of daily users. And for someone like me, and I'm sure for someone like you, Chad, it's a daily daily app that we on all the time. Sure. It's kind of my key messaging app of choice. And so it really is super powerful. And ever since Facebook bought it, we've been waiting for them to turn on monetization. We've been waiting for it, right? We're waiting for the ads, waiting for the, the, the user experience ruining things that Facebook likes to do. And uh, we're starting to see the first murmurs of it, right? You can't buy a company like this and not try and make revenue from it. So what WhatsApp are trying to do, what it looks like, is trying to copy the WeChat model, right? Trying to look at how WeChat worked in China. And what WeChat did in China was became kind of a marketplace for all sorts of things. So it became yeah. more than just messaging. It became a mobile money provider and a platform for people to transact on the app. 
And so what WhatsApp are doing is they are testing person-to-person payments. So for example, if you're in the US, you'll know of things like Venmo and, and those sorts of apps which do this kind of peer-to-peer payments over your like cell phone number or your email address. And this is an example of that. And now they've been testing some stuff in India for a while, for the last couple of years. Everyone assumed that India will be the first country to get the, re- get the real like beta test for WhatsApp payments. But funnily enough, Chad, it started in Brazil. So they've decided they're going to start in Brazil. They've opened up a, a pilot project where they're going to try and test this, this thing in, in Brazil and, and allow people to collect payments on the app. What it looks like is that enterprises are going to pay about 4% commission to accept payments. So if I'm a hairdresser, whatever, I can accept payments on WhatsApp. And if I'm doing it individual to individual, it looks like it's going to be free at the moment. So interesting business model. We have to wait and see what happens with that pilot. But if it works, I can see it being rolled out, especially to the developing world, very, very quickly. I mean, a lot of people would be very excited to hear about that and the prospect of it. But for me, it just strikes my ears and doesn't go any further than that. I don't think it's something that I would be using, to be honest. I think there's so many providers out there that are already doing such great things, especially if you look in South Africa's space, the likes of Zappa and Snapscan um, and, you know, all of these kinds of things. This side of the world, uh, there's great, great fintech companies like Revolut and Monzo and all of those kinds of things that are, I suppose, doing very similar things. Yeah, it's a good point, Chad. I think it's one of those things where Africa has actually been quite good and, and quite forward-thinking in this. I mean, if you look at Impesa in Kenya, which was kind of the world leader at that stage, do that mobile money. They kind of jump-started and got over all of the traditional financial services and started a whole new economy using these sorts of apps. So like you say, in Africa, I don't know what kind of use case they're going to have. Obviously, they have the scale of the users, so that's a big, that's a big sure. deal. So if they can provide a really good experience for a cheaper cost. You never know what could happen. But I don't think it's anything new. Like we've seen a lot of these things mm. before. And I think that we have to wait and see whether WhatsApp is going to become that that transactional app or not. For me, I kind of like the fact that WhatsApp is kind of doesn't have brands in it yet. I kind of like the fact that it's just my friends and just individuals yep. that I chat to. I don't know if I want brands and companies in that channel because it kind of muddies that channel, right? So we've got tons of other muddiness all around <laughs> your email and your Facebook and your Instagram and all that stuff. Absolutely. And so I wonder what it's going to do for user experience more so than if it's going to be a good business model for them. Because what happens if another messaging, I mean, there's tons of other messaging apps and they all do exactly the same thing, right? Yep. And so what happens if it's easy to switch because all of a sudden they throw tons of ads and tons of payments into your app? I don't know. Yeah, really interesting one. I suppose we can't expect to get something for free forever. Um, And I guess then the other side is whether we'd be happy to pay for those app subscriptions or anything like that. It really is a fascinating discussion. And uh, I suppose we'll have to see what we do when the time actually comes. Now, your favorite topic to chat about, Barry, is artificial intelligence and the evolution of facial recognition. What's happened this week? Definitely, Chad. It's one of my it's one of the things I really focus on. And I think it's a really important topic. Talking about some bias in facial recognition and how it's used in law enforcement, right? We've seen a lot of conversations about the Black Lives Matter movements and police brutality and those sorts of things over the last couple of weeks. And so that's why it's so timely to be chatting about it now and what's happened in the, in, the, in the last week is that there's been some big tech companies that have started saying that they refuse to sell their facial recognition technology or allow APIs to be open to the police and to stop police or law enforcement using it to try and look for suspects etc and so this is obviously the exact opposite of what's happening in China in China there's facial recognition everywhere and they use it as their key kind of policing strategy and here in the US specifically in kind of the western world there's a lot of dilemmas about the morality of this So over the last couple of years, we've seen a number of papers and studies talking about bias, talking about gender bias and racial bias when it comes to these data sets and how that impacts how this technology works. We've seen examples of when facial recognition is more accurate on white faces than it is on black faces and like substantially so because of some of the data sets have been fed in. And sometimes it's not representative of the population in which the technology is being used. And so there's a lot of moral and ethical dilemmas to think about here and a lot of impact socially about this technology. And so what happened in this last week is that Microsoft and IBM both announced that they will not offer their facial recognition tech to law enforcement until regulation okay. is in place. So until the federal government of the US comes on board and says this is how it can be work and this is how regulation is going to work, they are not going to offer these services to the police if they're looking for information. Now this follows Amazon and Google who have in the last year done exactly the same thing and made that same statement. So some of the biggest tech companies in the world are, are standing up and saying, listen, these 
this tech is not ready for what you're trying to use it for, so we're not going to give you access to it, and we're not going to sell it to you, we're not going to let you use it, and and they're turning down huge revenue streams to do so. So it's quite a big statement. Um, mm. Obviously, there's concerns about privacy, but also concerns about this bias thing, is, is how good is this tech, and is it actually ready to be used? Everyone is very excited about it, of course. Everyone is excited because it's, it's revolutionary. It could really change the way the world works, but it's not there yet. I think that it's very different using Face ID on your iPhone and kind of using that as a as a judgment of how good it is compared to a CCTV camera in the in the dark that's trying to pick up a face that's a hundred sure. hundred meters away. It's a very very different world. And so these companies standing up, I'm very happy to see it. I hope this is the first of many. We've seen kind of some opposite cases of startups who are trying to offer these services to the police. So I don't think it's going to stop the police from getting access to it, unfortunately, because there's tons of startups that could do it themselves. So for example, there's a company called Clearview.ai, which has recently received a whole bunch of hates because of what they've been doing. And so it's, it's a very, very difficult topic. I think the technology is powerful, but as with all of this AI stuff, we have to make sure we use it the right way or else there's a whole bunch of negative externalities that can occur. Yeah, this, I suppose, is the case whenever we don't have regulation. But equally, too much regulation is also never a good thing. So it's an interesting debate to see uh, and to see these big companies taking that stance. My thing, though, is how much differentiation is there across these different types of facial recognition technologies? Are these startups going to be able to mirror what the bigger providers are offering? Yeah, it's one of the key questions, Chad. I think that the, the models themselves are not necessarily difficult, and a lot of them are open source. So the algorithms themselves aren't the difficult piece. It's getting the data, and the more data you have, the better your model can be. And so, like you say, these big tech companies are at a huge advantage because of the amount of data that they have after collecting after years and years of us voluntarily giving this up. But startups are resourceful, and they're trying to find ways around that. For example, this Clearview company, the reason they were getting into trouble was they basically scraped the entire web and took every single publicly available photo on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, everything to put into wow. their data set. So John Oliver did a piece on it on last week tonight, and he was chatting about the fact that there's photos of probably you, you listening to this right now, there's probably photos of you in that Clearview database because there's been a photo of you that's publicly available somewhere and they've scraped it from the net. And now obviously that goes against terms of service of all these companies. So they're all now suing Clearview and Clearview's got to try and figure out what they're doing. But they can't be the only one. I'm sure there's tons of companies that are doing this. And it talks again to this lack of privacy. It talks again to some of the things that we give up when we take Facebook for free. We post all of our information and our photos online and we kind of don't think about what could happen with that information. And so all of this publicly available stuff, all these photos you've tagged yourself in that are publicly available, all of a sudden they're now in that database and there's not much you can do about it. And so it raises that same question, Chad, like what are we giving up in terms of privacy to get access to this technology? And it's an ethical dilemma. I think it's going to be a characteristic one of this generation. Absolutely. And who would have thought we'd be talking this much about facial recognition 10 years ago? It's actually insane. And the fact that these data sets have evolved and the fact that we have ourselves, like you say, voluntarily put this all up there. I mean, it's a really interesting one, especially the fact that we've consented to it being public. Um, so just in terms of their case against clearview.ai, going to be interesting to see what happens there too. Let's then move on to our next segment. Stuff I found interesting. Alrighty, let's kick off with stuff I found interesting. And I wanted to start this one off this week with a video that popped up past my YouTube feed. The algorithm decided you wanted to see this this past week, and I did. And what it was, was a video, basically something that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, about the pianos that are scattered across London, the Yamaha pianos, and this specific one being at King Cross St. Pancras International Station. And essentially, a piano that I've walked past many, many times was once occupied by the legend that is John Legend. And obviously a crowd circulated around him. And obviously he was as flawless as we would expect. I mean, he's John Legend, let's be honest. I was kind of just reading through the comments. Barry did tell me about the rules of the web. Never read the comments, but I always <laughs> do. And the comments actually struck me because I hadn't really noticed this aspect of the video. And the comment was, 10% of the people are enjoying the moment. 90% of the people are recording it just to show other people how their life is so amazing. And it's so true. If you look at the expressions of the people surrounding themselves, the guys right at the front of the queue, there would be millions of people around the world who would do anything to be there. 
and the person who's standing right at the front has got their smartphone out, kind of nonchalantly watching, not really taking it in, but they're obviously going to be using that footage to brag with. And I thought it was a fascinating comment and just a really interesting observation about society as a whole. I'm so glad you brought this up, Chad, because it's something that I, I think as well. I think it's a real problem with the, how the world works right now. And like you say, you've got John Legend sitting right in front of you playing, playing piano for you. It's like this intimate yeah. moment, and you're not even present. You're not even there in that experience. And to be honest, Chad, I mean, we all know this. We all go to these concerts, and we try and take these videos, and we look yeah. at them the next day, and they are terrible videos. The yeah. sound isn't good. They're blurry. Your hand is shaking. It's not an enjoyable experience to watch it afterwards. Yeah. And the question is, do you actually need need that video afterwards right especially in a case when there's 10,000 other people around you someone is going to be videoing it you'll be able to find it somewhere it's not like it's a rare unique piece because all the people around you are taking their videos right and so we have to be able to push against that and actually just enjoy that moment in a similar vein I watched a, a video of Alicia Keys today when she was at the Tiny Desk yeah. concert uh, in, in NPR same sort of idea very intimate setting like a small amount of people but again people are standing there taking videos of it instead of just enjoying the moment and looking her in the eyes I would think if I'm yeah. an artist and I'm trying to perform for somebody and I look up and all I see is phones and instead of the eyes of the audience, I'm a, I'd be quite disappointed, I think, because I'm trying to connect. I'm trying to emote my, my music. I don't actually know if I want to see phones everywhere, especially in that kind of setting. And so I think for all of us, we have to kind of push against that peer pressure. I know I feel it. When I, when I see everyone yeah. else takes the phones <laughs> out, it's hard to keep yours in your pocket. You're like, oh, am I missing up? It's a whole FOMO <laughs> thing, right? And so we have to be the strong ones. We have to be the strong ones to leave the phone in the pocket and just enjoy what's happening in front of you, especially those serendipitous moments that are like not planned or you didn't realize he was going to be there that day. Those are magic moments that the memory will last way longer than your terrible iPhone video. Yeah, it really is interesting. And you're completely right. I feel the pressure too. I think the difference here is that these people probably didn't even like John Legend, but they still went to the front, had their phones out as if because they wanted to profess it. And that, that's the interesting thing. I think you're right though, Barry. I think we do need to make more of an effort to connect with artists, especially when we're as privileged as this to, to be in a setting like this. I just wish it was me. Barry, let's then move on to talk about one of your other favorite things, robotics and uh, robotic dogs yeah so this one is hard to talk about without seeing the video so i'm going to put a video link in the description please go and check it out it is crazy to see uh, if, you, if you've ever watched black mirror you might remember the one episode with this robot dog that was chasing this woman for basically the whole episode trying to kill her it was already a terrible episode but it was an example of like a, a highly advanced robotic animal that was able to do crazy amounts of things right so be able to go across all sorts of textures all sorts of heights and go up and down and jump into all sorts of things and Boston Dynamics has recently made their dog robot, which they call Spot, available to be bought. So previously, they were just a research organization. Over the last couple, kind of couple of years, I've been following their developments and watching as the robot got better and better and better and scarily so. Like If you look at this video, it's kind of sci-fi-ish. It's, it's really strange. And now it's finally available to be bought by organizations. So Chad, in case you wanted to go and buy one, it's going to cost you around <laughs> $90,000 if you want all yeah. the bells and whistles, if you want the LiDAR and the extra batteries and all that stuff. So it's, it's relatively expensive at this point. Um, but the fact that it's becoming commercial available is quite interesting for the world of robotics. Uh, we've seen it used for lots of construction projects uh, when they're trying to reduce risk of getting things into difficult areas. We've seen it in warehouses. We've seen it picking up things, like lots of interesting uh, use cases. And uh, I think this is the first of many from Boston Dynamics as they start to get these things into commercially available products. From just a few years ago where they were just testing out random prototypes and you just watch the, all the fails and the bloopers and all that good stuff, just selling something now that is actually ready to go is, is relatively terrifying when you think about yep. the robotics and what it's going to do for automation going forward. So yeah, I would encourage you to go and see the video, uh, Spot the, the Robots from Boston Dynamics. Uh, it'll blow your mind. Yeah, this is the same, I believe, the same robot that we spoke about who was monitoring law enforcement in terms of social distancing in Singapore. And I also, it's came across my feed this week uh, that I saw it was available for sale. Obviously, that price tag is pretty heavy. <laughs> and also, I'm not sure what I would do with a robotic dog. But... <laughs> 
it's, it is just insane, the fact that you can actually buy these things. And uh, I guess the, the question here is, what can it do? What can't it do? Does Are there some sort of limits, moral limits that have been placed on it? Barry, do you know? It depends what you mean by moral limits. Um, of course, we have to remember it's not like full AI just yet. It, it's more like right. a utility kind of robot to really do pre-programmed stuff. It's not autonomous in the way that the Black Mirror one is just yet, but you can imagine it getting there. And it's one of those things where it's used for very specific use cases. Like you say, Chad, I don't think individuals are going to be going out and buying this thing. It's going to be large organizations who have very specific needs in construction or warehousing or these sorts of things. Um, also, what's quite interesting is, is to thinking about its, its future in space travel. Um, at the moment, we've got the Mars rover running around on Mars, collecting all sorts of things, and that's an autonomous robot that's doing yeah. all sorts of things. But that's reliant on wheels, and it's a little bit clunky, and it's still quite old because it was launched a couple of years ago. I can imagine SpaceX on their next journey, wherever they're going to be going, chucking a bunch of those robots on and letting them loose and going to collect whatever scientific data they can. Mm -hmm. So I think there's lots of interesting use cases, but it's going to be at a much higher end, and uh, we mustn't kid ourselves and think that these things are autonomous or moral or any of that stuff yet. That is still to come. Absolutely. Well, thanks for educating me there, Barry. Uh, I had no idea. Well, one of the other things that I found interesting this past week is obviously as we all transition to remote working, uh, there was an article that was published by S&P Global um, about how remote working can further accentuate the bro culture and workplace exclusivity of some firms. Now, traditionally, financial service firms, a lot of them have been said to have this kind of bro-type culture. And obviously, now the fact that we are now transitioning into our own homes, transitioning into a more informal working environment, it becomes a lot easier for these kinds of things to slip through the cracks. We use more informal language on chats. Um, you know, monitoring of these types of things is obviously not as high up there as we would like it to be. And also just not including the entire workforce. And I suppose that could lead to a lot of people being specifically excluded. And that obviously for any company is not a good thing. Yeah, I think managers have a really important role in this transition as we try and move into these new ways of work, right? Management's becoming even more difficult because you've got to understand a whole bunch of new skills now that weren't really needed when you weren't remote and to try and fight against some of these stereotypes and fight against some of these automatic kind of groupings of people. And uh, like you said, that bro culture is quite serious in a lot of industries, especially in financial services. In investment banking, I remember it was a really big reason of why I left in the end because I, I didn't really like that culture at all. And so it's important for managers to understand what are the kind of the psychological and the group think things that happen in these remote environments, especially when you start using things like email and Slack and all of these sorts of new tools. It's a whole bunch of new management skills you've got to be on board. And at the end of the day, whatever your whatever the culture being set by those in charge, that's what's going to filter down to the rest of the organization for the most part. And so it really relies on those managers understanding these kind of movements, Chad, and trying to find ways to actively fight against it and try and build the culture that you want to be in the organization, which is as representative as possible, as inclusive yeah. as possible, so everyone there can feel like they belong. Absolutely. Well, just a bit of a shift in focus, I suppose, as we're now transitioning out of the fight or flight response to survival mode of just getting the organization going, I suppose, keeping it at capacity um, in this transition to remote working. And now we actually need to start being a little bit more intentional, I suppose, about things we're doing and really look at conscious inclusion as well. Let's move on to our next segment. Looking ahead. This week on Looking Ahead, Chad, we're going to start with the future of email, which is a weird thing to do because email is old, right? Email is old. Yeah. But the reason we bring it up is because we've finally seen some innovation. As far as email goes, things have been very much the same for the last 20, 30 years probably. And uh, it's, one of those, it's one of those really important tools that is still used every single day. I know lots of people, lots of tech pundits over the years who've predicted that email would fall away and email will be superseded, but somehow it still survives and it's still a crucial piece of this world's technology, right? But unfortunately, it's become a little bit of a, a pain for a lot of us, Chad. I think you know the feeling, anyone who's worked in a corporate knows the feeling when you log on and you see 374 emails in your box or yeah. 2,400, like the numbers are crazy. And I, I know of all those screenshots people take, oh, look at my 13,000 unread <laughs> emails in my inbox, right? It 
becomes a pain because email is one of those channels that everyone can just send stuff into. And if you don't manage it carefully, it can become a real pain, a real anxiety-producing mechanism. And so everyone kind of has a love-hate relationship with email, I feel. It's very important and crucial for the work that we do, but it can be really damaging if we don't take care of it properly. And so there's this new company called Hey.com. I love the domain name, first of all, but Hey. And that has come out in the last couple of days that I think is fascinating. It's, it's, it's created by the guys who made Basecamp, which is one of my favorite apps, uh, Jason Fried and David Hanemeyer Hansen. And they are really trying to do their best to reinvent the email experience for the user and try and make it a more pleasant place to be. So let's look at the features that, that really make this very different. The first thing, Chad, is that a little bit of branding here. They've changed what we call an inbox to an inbox, I-M-B-O-X, <laughs> trying to get rid of that, that negative connotation of, oh, I have to get into my inbox and get rid of it. And the reason they call it that is they think of it as an important box. So what they try and do with the inbox is only let important emails through and screen everything else out. So in a similar way that Gmail has tried to do it with their promotions tab and their marketing tab and all that yep. good stuff, this is an advanced version of that and even more kind of strict about how they screen things. So what happens is that every time someone emails you for the very first time, it doesn't go into your inbox. It goes into like a screening process where you can yeah. then decide, cool, do I want to get emails from this person? If it's a no, say it's a marketing email, you never want to be, be emailed by these people. They got your email address from buying some database somewhere or whatever the story is. You click no and that domain is blocked forever. They will never be able to email you ever again. So a very quick and easy way to screen out a lot of the unnecessary junk that gets into our email inboxes. After that, if you do want to get emails from them, you click yes, and then the emails will start to go into the inbox going forward. The second thing is how they've grouped the emails. So I don't know about you, Chair, but I kind of use my emails sometimes as a to-do list, and I'll go through it, and yep. if there's something I need to do, I'll mark it as unread and leave it there to remind myself <laughs> that I still need to go back to it, right? And that's a it's a it's a really inefficient way of doing things. You end up reading the email four or five times because you can't take action on it right now. So what they try and do in, in Hey is they try and group your, your read emails and your unread emails in separate places so that it actually acts as that to-do list. So you're not scrolling through tons of emails to figure out which are the ones I've starred or which are the ones I've left unread to go back to. It's in its own place. And those seen emails then become part of your archive as we would know it in normal emails. So an interesting just change in user experience there. The third thing, which is going to make a lot of email marketers quite worried, is this idea of the news feed, right? So I think everyone understands the idea that in, in your email inbox, you've got some important stuff that are from actual human beings that you want to reply to, but you've also got a bunch of newsletters, whether it's from Superbalist or Take A Lot or Amazon or bloggers that you follow or writers. Yeah. Everyone has got an email newsletter these days, myself included, so it's a little bit <laughs> ironic. Um, everyone's got an email newsletter these days, and uh, those newsletters are not urgent, right? You don't have to read that newsletter that day, whereas yeah. actual work stuff is urgent and might need to be replied to that day. So what they do is they allow you to screen various things into your news feed. And what this does is instead of creating a list of new emails, it pulls out all the information for the emails and gives it to you in a news feed like we would see on Facebook or Instagram okay. or anything like we've been used to. And you scroll down and scroll up and, and go through it at your leisurely pace. So it's not about opening each email, reading it, and then deleting it. Open the next one, read it, and delete it. It's all in a feed like we were used to with all of our other social media apps. So what the news feed does is it really does throw a span in the works when you're trying to do analytics on your emails. Because all of a sudden, and what does an open actually mean if someone can just scroll right past it and kind of go to the next one? Mm -hmm. And so it's really going to change the experience of, of email newsletters and newsletters in general. I think what Hey are trying to do is trying to make it as pleasant as possible and get rid of all the spam that comes our, comes our way, right? With one click, you can remove that from your newsfeed and they'll never be able to email you again. Now, obviously, you could do that previously by blocking emails and whatnot, but the user experience is so much cleaner and so much more well-designed in this, in this instance. The last piece, and I think it's the most important one, is they're blocking against privacy violations. So whether you know it or not, there's a lot of companies right now that will allow people to send emails and then will track, did you open the email? What time did you open it? Where in the world were you? How many times did you open it? A tremendous amount of personal information about how you've interacted with that email. And that's how marketers have kind of A-B tested various things and tried to make sure they increase their open rates as much as possible. So it's a huge industry to understand that, that conversion. Hey thinks this is not fair and, and not reasonable. And I kind of agree, especially when it's myself. Uh, I don't want that data to be going to somebody else. And so they've done a very clever workaround where Hey will open the email for you in their own little service 
a like VPN type setup so that the data is meaningless to the person they send it to. And then a forwarded version comes into your inbox to be read. And so you don't mm. give up any information when it comes to your location or how many times you read it or did you read it, et cetera, et cetera. And not only that, they show a little box that kind of names and shames the person. It says, this person sent you an email from this mailing client. We blocked the privacy tracking pixels for this reason, et cetera, et cetera. So it really is a big kind of screw you to these companies, which I I quite enjoy. So all in all, I feel like I'm waffling here, Chad, but I'm quite excited about this. And I think it's going to change how email is done going forward. And I'm excited to see if these features are going to become commonplace in some other apps in the future. Well, Barry, I've only seen you this excited about one other thing, and that was about makeup and AI makeup. (laughs) And so it's really interesting to see you as interested again in something as interesting as email. Um, But I think you're right. I think we've been looking for some changes for some time. I have been quite impressed, to be honest, about Google's offering and how it screens and uh, filters out various kinds of things. And I think we've needed that for a long time. But at the same time, it's never perfect. Very often, some stuff will end up in my scam box, and it's actually a really important email. And so I think any new providers here are, are certainly, certainly not coming to this game too late. I don't know if there is such a thing as too late. But for me, the interesting thing here is what is it that they are offering? Do you have to sign up to a hey.com email address, or will they take on your Gmail address as well? So what happens, as far as I understand, is you sign up and you do get a hey.com email address, and you can forward your Gmail address into hey. So it's because all the workarounds, because of what they're trying to do, it's it's not possible to take your old Gmail address and and use it like as normal. But what you can do is kind of get a fresh start, and that's what they're trying to do in their marketing, trying to say get a fresh start, declare inbox bankruptcy, get rid of all of that stuff. You can always forward all your emails, so you don't have to tell everybody else you've changed emails. But using hey is kind of a it's a workflow tool tool more than anything else it's hard to explain like i I would really encourage you if if email is something you struggle with or that really is a pain go and watch some of the things online some of the videos and you'll get a good sense as to what they've tried to do here it's a very clever use of kind of social engineering and try and really make it as pleasant as possible for the for the user like you say chad filtering and all that stuff is not new it's not something that's brand new but it's the way they've put it all together and really like knitted into this brand new experience that is interesting the second thing is why it's different to gmail is that gmail are harvesting that data to be used elsewhere right and that's why it's free hey.com isn't free it's a subscription service for email so instead of instead of paying in data you're paying in dollars every single month and then you know that none of your information is being leaked you're not getting sold anything it's it's one of those things where it, they're pushing against that advertising model that Gmail is so crucial for. So the question is, will people spend for email? I don't know. That's a question that needs to be asked. Um, but for some of those power users who really are frustrated by the experience right now and who get thousands of emails every single day, I think this is very powerful. And online has been a huge hype about it. Well, let's talk about that point, Barry. Let's talk about the money. And I suppose why this has been a, such a big story this week is I actually didn't even know what it was or you know what the service was or what the offering was, but I came across this hey.com name and I came across it in some Apple disputes where Apple are complaining really about listing this app on their ecosystems because of the fact that there are no in-app purchases available and that the subscription model is actually held outside of the app store. And I found this fascinating because there's lots of cases of this. I think of the Adobe Creative Cloud Suite where you go onto the Adobe website, sign up your subscription there. You don't go across this app store at all, but that's okay. So why did this one cause so much noise this week? It's so interesting, Chad, because it's one of those things that I've been watching this as a marketing ploy as well. Like you say, the publicity that the hate.com guys got out of the story was immense, especially for a brand new product, right? And so they really did really well to use it for that reason. Basically, what happened was that they are fighting against the App Store. If you don't know, if you want to be in the App Store for Apple and you want to sell a subscription, say an in-app purchase, or you want someone to buy your app, etc., Apple will take 30% of the commission for that, yeah. which is a huge amount, right? And especially if you're on, a, on an email app where you can't, you can't charge crazy amounts for email for yeah. individual people. And so, like you say, a lot of people are trying to go around the App Store. They're trying to get the subscription outside of the App Store and just use the App Store for distribution. And we've seen that in the past. People have managed to get it right. And so for some reason, Apple picked up on Hey when they launched and wouldn't allow them to send updates to the store to fix bugs and whatnot because they were going against this rule. And Hey was like, hold on, but there's tons of apps who already do it like this and uh, you haven't kind of come down on them. And plus, it's a huge antitrust thing, right? Why should should I be forced to sell in-app purchase through your app? 
Why, why should that be a reason? Especially if my, a lot of my discovery might be coming from elsewhere. And, and Apple's kind of, Apple's point of view is that they've built this ecosystem over years and years and years. The reason it's so valuable to be on that app store is because there are millions and millions of iPhones to sell to. So that is why our commission is reasonable. So it's an interesting economic debate as to how much of a monopoly does Apple actually have? Can they, can they impose this sort of thing on an app? Can they impose it on everybody to say that you have to have your in-app purchases going through the app store and not elsewhere? And it's very timely because at the moment, literally we started today, was Apple's WWDC conference, which is when their developers all go to hear about the new developments when it comes to making apps. And so this is a developing story, Chad, but I think that the Hey.com guys are trying to use it as, as an example of how Apple is kind of pushing down smaller developers. And they're in a position to say something because they've got a name and a brand behind them, whereas tons of developers have probably faced the same issues but haven't had the platforms to speak up. It's a really important discussion to be having. And for the people who love Apple products, I'm certainly one of those on the far end of the fanboy scale. Um, do you actually want to be supporting a business that is just placing these mandatory, really high commissions on every single app purchase? Like you said, Barry, sure, they've set out the framework of what this operating system does, but they didn't develop the app. They didn't come up with the idea of the app, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I do see a place for some sort of commission, but I do think it should be a reasonable amount. And uh, it's an interesting discussion to have. And I wonder really, as time tracks on, how much pressure us, the users, are going to be putting onto Apple um, for these types of scenarios. Now, one of the examples of this this past week that actually leads us really nicely into the next one um, is that Apple refused, essentially, to list Facebook's gaming platform on the App Store because of the fact that they have their own. They've got the Apple Arcade. Um, and so I suppose in this kind of situation, you've always got to ask, what hat are they wearing? Are they wearing the Apple Arcade gaming platform hat? Or are they wearing the we built the operating system kind of hat? And for me, I see a bit of a conflict here. What do you think? It's the standard Apple debate, right? It's been going on since the beginning of the company is that what does this closed ecosystem actually mean? And the idea of this closed ecosystem from Apple's perspective is that we can do whatever we want. It's our it's our place. It's our garden to look after. Yeah. And so it makes a lot of sense from a business perspective to try and maybe stop a competing product that might be better or might be better suited because you've got your own in the market. Um, and you can't do that in other open ecosystems, things like Android and whatnot, which are much more open and much more kind of supplier friendly, uh, it's very different to the Apple ecosystem. So yeah, it's one of those things where Apple's got to decide, like you say, which hat are they wearing? And uh, often it's a, it's a short-term versus a long-term debate. You might yep. think that in the short term, trying to protect Apple Arcade might be the right move. But over a longer term, you actually want it to be as supplier friendly as possible because the, the strength of that ecosystem is how varied and how, how good the apps are. You want the apps to be world class. And so you don't want to be saying no to them out of some sort of weird competitive debate. We wouldn't have this discussion if Apple wasn't so closed. So the question is, Chad, will it stay closed forever? And is that the right move for them? Well, a move very similar is the fact that Spotify for a long time wasn't available on Apple TV because Apple was very, very strongly focusing on Apple Music. And as somebody who switched from Apple Music to Spotify, that was really frustrating for me. But over time, now there's an app. So hopefully they can do the same thing here as well. Let's move on to our next segment. Develop and Grow. On Develop and Grow this week, we're going to start with a quote that I came across. We seem to be doing a lot of quotes in the last couple of weeks, but <laughs> I, this quote I really loved as well. And it's talking about the idea of work-life balance. So I'm going to read it in entirety and we can chat about it just now. Awesome. Imagine life as a game in which you are juggling some five balls in the air. You name them work, family, health, friends, and spirit. And you're keeping all of these in the air. You will soon understand that work is a rubber ball. If you drop it, it will bounce back. But the other four balls, family, health, friends, and spirits, are made of glass. If you drop one of these, they will be irrevocably scuffed, marked, nicked, damaged, or even shattered. They will never be the same. This quote is from Brian Dyson, and it's such a beautiful metaphor, it's such a beautiful image to remind us that work is not everything, right? We often find ourselves in these stressful situations where we've got too many things looking for our time and we feel very overloaded, and we feel this pressure to keep up with our work stuff because obviously our salary is on the line, our career is on the line, we have some sort of obligation to our boss or to the company we work for. But every now and then we have to remind ourselves that life is about more than our work. 
And so I thought I'd bring this up just to remind us, especially in this time where everyone is on that Zoom call lifestyle, where they're working even longer yeah. hours than they used to, and they're trying to do as much as they can. You have to take time out for yourself, for your family, for your friends, for your spirits, for all of that good stuff, because that is the stuff that, that really matters. And that's the stuff that if you drop the ball on those, there's real damage. If you miss a few deadlines at work, you'll survive. You'll figure it out, right? But everything else is more important. This quote is really a little life raft, I feel. Um, it's weird why we wait for something to be too late, really. We wait for these catastrophic events to happen in our personal lives, to bring things into perspective. But actually what we should do is, is have this view of it, have this view of what each of these disciplines entails and, and how much damage each of these disciplines can do in the long term. And I think it's an important quote. Uh, I love it. Thanks, Barry. One of the quotes that I saw this past week, which I also really enjoyed, um, was kind of, I suppose, something very similar to what we just spoke about a few weeks ago about the man who said you need to go to a lot of funerals to see how people are reacting. And this quote is, people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And this is a quote by Maya Angelou. And I really loved this quote as well. It's very similar to, as I said, one that we've discussed before. Um, but we often think that things that we say and the way that we act will be held against us. And I think a lot of the time we're right, a lot of the time it will be. But one thing that will always, as a certainty, be held against us is how we treat people. And so no matter what you're going through, no matter what the current mood or state of affairs is, always be very careful about how you treat other people, even if it is in a moment of irrationality. Try and always treat people the way you want to be treated. Yeah, it talks about what energy you're sending out into the world, right? What kind of environment and, and kind of family situation, friends, and even in public are you trying to create for yourself? And we all know those people who are smart, intelligent, accomplished, but everyone kind of thinks they're an arsehole or a douchebag because of yep. the way they act to people, right? And, and that's not who you want to be. You want to be that person who really does bring optimism and bring light and joy to situations. And the energy that you give out is the energy you're going to receive. And so that's a very important thing to remember in these, in these times. So many of us, and myself included, get caught up in trying to tick all the boxes of the goals, right? Get all the accomplishments, get the titles behind my name, get all the success that the kind of society wants you to do. At the end of the day, we, we often need to hear a reminder to just be kind or to be nice or to be gentle with people yeah. because the way you make them feel, like you say, Chad, or like Maya Angelou says, that's what's going to be remembered. And at the end of the day, that's what they're reading in your eulogy one day. They're not reading about the fact you were a head boy and you had this much money and you had these cars yeah. and you had these accomplishments. They're reading about your character. They're telling stories about how you impacted their lives. And I wish we could understand that in kind of those moments of our days where we're so focused on monetary things or materialistic things and we're not thinking deeply enough about what kind of people we want to be. 100%. Well, while we are pursuing all of these goals of taking off the list, like you say, Barry, I think what we do like to do is we do like to make waves into the world and we do like to, I suppose, put a little bit of meaning out there as well with our little tick box exercises. And one example of that was this past weekend was the Peter McKinnon 72-hour short film challenge. And uh, for those of you who don't know who Peter McKinnon is, he is a legend of a YouTuber. And in my mind, is really the king of cinematography and his short film challenge was just that it was a very very impromptu last minute no lead up to it he dropped a video and he said i don't know what you're doing this weekend i'm sorry but here's the challenge um and so there were three rules really um, you had to shoot the footage this weekend within that allotted time slot. The footage had to be yours. And I suppose importantly as well is that you used music that was uh, copyright free or music that you had licensed to use. And so I basically started this journey by reaching out to my best friend who's a writer, <laughs> a genius, a wordsmith. And that is no one other than the great Barry Maurice. That's very kind words, Chad. I wouldn't say genius. I would say... Uh, Oh, amateur writer trying to become better. Um, but I was very flattered to get the to get the message and say, and you said to me, listen, I've got this 72-hour film challenge. I need like a script. I need something to work from. Do you have any ideas? And we talked about a few ideas and I wrote something up and sent it through. And uh, literally a day and a half later, you had provided this amazing piece of visual imagery to go behind those words and really turned into something really 
inspiring, I felt. And I was really happy with it. So congratulations, Chad. I, no matter if you win it or not, I think it was a great film. And it really talked to kind of some of the things I've been thinking about when we talk about being authentic online and being authentic yeah. in our lives and talking about how do we show the real person, how do we show the real you. So I won't ruin the film. You please go and check it out on Chad's YouTube channel. It's, it's great. But uh, I think it, it was a great experience for to see my words come to life. It was a weird thing. It was on my Evernote like on Saturday afternoon and Sunday night I got a link and it was beautifully put together with amazing music and, and your fiance modeling like extraordinarily there. Uh, it really was a really cool experience. And so how did you how did you find it, Chad? How was the experience trying to get all the footage in that short space of time? I'm sure it was quite chaotic. That's the thing. I've never ever done anything like this and I've never actually done a video like this at all. Um, and so to have that script that really was remarkable, which really was just perfect, flawless, um, to work from really just set the tone for the the day of shooting and the day of editing that followed um and i loved i loved the story like you said barry i don't want to spoil it too much um you can see it on my youtube channel so you can just search chad sturley and the film is called we've always worn masks it's only about three minutes um so it's not going to take up your entire day um but i, I love the journey i loved i love the process of it i love the the finality of of having a deadline I suppose often with these creative projects, we kind of try to get them to perfect. And uh, I suppose we forced sometimes to, to, to actually just make a call, make a call, run with it. And even when we were discussing the idea for the premise of the film, we had loads of different options and some might be more fitting, some might be less fitting, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think the best thing to do is just grab that idea and run with it and try to be as creative as you can with what you have. Um, luckily, it turned out really great and I'm really, really pleased with it. And like I said, that script was just the perfect uh, backbone um, to what was uh, the great narrative of the film. But I learned a lot. I really did learn a lot just having to commit to certain edits or commit to certain clips, even though you're not 100% satisfied with them. I think it just shows you that you, you can actually cross over the line a lot of the times. A lot of the times we are hypercritical of ourselves. A lot of the times we, we actually are okay with what we've got and it's good enough. It's, it's good enough. Um, I think that's an important message. And, and I suppose that's what I learned on this. We underestimate the power of constraints when we come to creativity. Like mm -hmm. A lot of people are talking about the fact that when you're creative, it feels like you've got the whole world around you. You can do a thousand different things, right? And there's so much that obviously we get. We, we often get into those times where we have we are paralyzed by how many options we have. Like you say, yeah. those clips could be edited into a thousand different ways and you can have a thousand yeah. different songs and there's lots of this abundance that makes these things difficult. So to have these constraints is really powerful, whether it's compressed time, whether it's the amount of footage you can get in that weekend, whether it's where you can get the footage from. All of these things is really a way of kind of narrowing down your choices to give you a real direction and a north star and like you say it's a matter of then just making it and then letting it out into the world even though it's not perfect I mean you could have spent another month on that thing and tweaked every little thing and made it a tiny yep. bit better but at the end of the day your time is actually better spent on telling new stories and so I'm really proud of you dude it was a really great film and I would say it again please go and watch it guys go to Chad's YouTube channel and watch the film I think it came out really 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 well and I hope you make some more of them in the future Chad thank you very much Barry and and again, thanks for your contribution as well. And let's hold thumbs. Maybe we can rack a place there. Who knows? Let's move on to our final segment. What's on your mind? So we haven't had what's on your mind for a few weeks, I suppose. Our, our <laughs> listeners have been in the depths of quarantine, uh, not really thinking too much, I suppose, kind of just on that survival uh, mode, on that survival instinct. Um, but we did get one question in this week. So Raf, thank you so much for your question. And his question is, what are your thoughts on coronavirus, the impact this is having on the environment? So we've got less emissions, hence greener world. Um, how are experts saying that COVID is nature's SOS for humankind? Um, and we've seen these messages pop up on our social medias. We've got Venice that now has dolphins again. Uh, we're seeing, <laughs> obviously, when you look at, I suppose, the pollution that we've put out into the environment, uh, the, the numbers are looking absolutely fantastic. What is your take on this, Barry? It's interesting. I, I, read, I read a really cool piece. I can't remember who it was, but he was talking about the fact that if you think about it from nature's perspective, humanity is the virus on nature. We're the ones yep. who've kind of taken over everything and spread wildly and kind of taken 
taken over the ecosystem. And so now that we've all gone into lockdown, the virus, is, the na nature's virus has kind of succeeded and it's been allowed to kind of rejuvenate. And yeah. like you say, we've seen lots of amazing things when it comes to the oceans, when it comes to some of the rainforests and all the various um, improvements in nature that's become as a result of humans not being as involved in those ecosystems. Whether it's a SOS call, I don't know. The, the, the article that we referenced was was quite a, quite a, a strong claim. I think yeah. there are some things I'd be willing to stand behind. Things like we have to understand that going forward, we have to stop the wet markets, especially in China, where the where the bat mm. originally came from and whatnot. Um, our interaction with wild animals in that way is is one of the major causes for these sorts of viruses, when viruses yeah. jump from wild animals into humans. So in order to protect ourselves, we have to try and make sure that those things are, are eradicated and we try and make sure that where we get our meat, where we get our animals, are done as sustainably as possible. Obviously, it talks to some of the factory farming problems we have when we, we, we require such huge farms to to get all the meat needed for the rest of the world. Um, there's a lot of discussions to be had there. The second thing is that we've realized that actual general health matters, right? So how we take care of ourselves by what we eat, by what we do, by exercise, all that good stuff, it really matters when we look at what is a sustainable future going forward. Especially our cleanliness and our personal hygiene. I don't know about you, Chad, but I've washed my hands more in the last <laughs> little bit than I have for a long time. And I really learned, I've learned a lot about what it actually takes to wash your hands properly. So again, hopefully we carry forward these lessons. But on a macro level, we need to understand our relationship with nature. And again, climate change is that huge elephant in the room that is very difficult to kind of talk about because it gets politicized so easy. But it's a very big problem for us. And uh, hopefully there's some kind of tweaking in some people's minds when they see what's happened to the world when humanity's gone into its shell for a little bit. Yeah. And it proves that we can make change, right? The fact that we saw change proves that we can make changes that could change the outcome of climate change. And uh, it's, do we have the willpower? Do we have the economic incentive? Do we have the, the belief to actually go and do that on a longer-term basis when this pandemic has passed? And uh, I don't know about that, Chad. Yeah, I also don't know. Like you said in one of our previous episodes, that humans forget really quickly. Even just in this easing process, even being able to see friends again at social distances, we forget really quickly. Sometimes the, the lines get really blurry. We, we kind of think of how things were before. And uh, I think that is the, the danger here is do we return to our old bad habits or do we adopt the, the new age way, the sustainable way? Do we carry on with our flights at a whim um, and, you know, carry on with all of that air travel and pollution? Do we go back to having our double, triple beef burgers, um, etc.? And we'll have to see. I certainly hope that we make some, some tweaks uh, in the right direction. That then brings us to the end of yet another jam-packed episode, Barry. Uh, we've been stacking these episodes full up. Definitely, Chad. We've had a lot of full episodes in the last few weeks, but lots of stuff going on, so it makes a whole lot of sense. We hope that you found something of value in this podcast. If you have enjoyed yourself, please do let us know. Send us a message on any of our social media platforms. And if there's anyone in your life who you think could benefit from this kind of stuff, please send it their way. We'd love to kind of grow our audience a little bit. We've enjoyed the process of making these every single week. And uh, yeah, we're looking forward to making a whole bunch more, Chad. Well, before you go anywhere, please do follow all of our social media pages. On Twitter, we are at across underscore podcast. On Instagram, we are at across the podcast. And on Facebook, we are across the pond podcast. Until next week. Pond, 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 across the pond.